Just a quick moment to say a big thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Drowsy. Anyone who suffers from anxiety or stress will know just how detrimental poor sleep can be to your well-being. I, like you, know that a good night's sleep is profoundly healing and can really improve the quality of your life, which is why I've invested in a drowsy sleep mask, as it guarantees that I'm going to wake up feeling great. I know what you're all thinking. It's just a sleep mask. But I can tell you it's unlike any sleep mask I've ever used. It has transformed the quality of my sleep. I'm sleeping better than ever before, in total darkness, and rarely wake up during the night. It's made from padded silk, which wraps around your head, and I can't tell you how heavenly it feels. And I don't wake up with any horrible skin creases or puffy eyes. You can't put a price on being able to sleep well every night. And it's reassuring knowing that whatever day you've had, you can go home and wrap yourself in drowsy and drift off. So if you're in need of the best night's sleep ever, drowsy is the answer. Head to drowsysleepco.com and use the code JULIA for 25% off of any of their sleep accessories today. That's drowsysleepco.com, D-R-O-W-S-Y, and use the code JULIA, J-U-L-I-A, for 25% off. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. Well, Johnny Wilkinson, CBE, I am really thrilled that you're joining us in my Therapy Works podcast. It isn't something that I would imagine that I would meet you. You're known as probably the best British rugby player that's ever been. Um, obviously famous for scoring the winning goal in the World Cup in 2003. And I do want to talk to you about sport, but also as the host of the I Am podcast and your own process of getting to be who you are, I see you as someone who can change. And normally people want change without changing. And that is something that I am very curious about. And just from a kind of personal side, you have been part of our family, you know, since you've been playing rugby. My son is a big fan of yours and my my husband. And there's a little anecdote that in 2003, when you came back from winning that scoring goal, you had a little private moment with your girlfriend in the square that we live. 
and we managed to barge in on you, interrupt you, and left an autograph, <laughs> break your little moment of intimacy. And that is now hanging framed um, in my son's bedroom. And so we hold a special place for you within our family. And that also must be quite a strange thing of that we feel that we know you, but you've never met us. In my first question that I always ask every guest is, tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome? Well, thanks for having me uh, for a start. It's always a pleasure. And I think I'm, I feel so uh, privileged to be able to talk about things and have conversations that go deeper than that sort of surface level to speak about things where yeah, you, you are essentially forced to bear yourself a bit more open and reveal a bit more about what's, I don't necessarily think it's about who you are, but more just on a deeper level of uh, moving towards who you are. And I think, um, challenge has always been my vehicle for moving down through those layers and something I'd be being challenged by now uh, and essentially have always been challenged by is it came up in me when you said about people want change without changing and that was me that was me for so long to say that I have to remain who I am that was essentially how you won rugby games was to say what we're doing is better than what you're doing and we have to stick to it sort of for longer and and just commit to it harder and we will win out and to a degree there's a lot of truth in that but actually there's a huge amount more truth for me in the quality of the expression of the talent and the gifts in that team, people fully expressing themselves, their spontaneity, their creativity, their connections with each other. And yet for me personally, I became so uninterested in my creativity and my spontaneity. I just wanted to win through every situation I faced so I could remain as I was. And my challenge throughout my life has been giving up that perceived kind of amazing destination for the unknown and that perceived destination the reason that i've become so much more willing to give it up in service of finding out more of about who i really am or who i'm supposed to be is i guess that i found myself at some of those real high points where i'd given up everything i'd i'd sort of batted off all this challenge um i'd try to just conquer it in order that I have this moment. And I got those moments. When I look back, they just weren't worth it. <laughs> they just weren't worth it. And I think therefore with each one that I continue to, you know, with an, an air of not disappointment, but with an air of kind of slight emptiness that I keep reaching goals, each time I find myself more motivated to, to at least try to understand what is surrendering to the unknown because sometimes you can find yourself caught thinking I'm letting go when actually you're still fighting to get what you want by letting go it's not the same thing what is it to really just surrender to something and give yourself over and that's the big challenge hugely and it's it's daily it's it's sort of a a moment by moment challenge but it's it's making life very very interesting um engaging and, and at times you know quite exciting at other times quite painful I can hear kind of hours and years of processing and thought in those few minutes that you spoke. It feels like you have traveled so many journeys in recalibrating who you are, the simple 
goal of scoring a goal and winning, which is quite a fixed, rigid goal, and but all of the hours of preparation that goes into that, to recognising that contrary to what most of society is actually asking of us, that living a good life as a sort of shorthand isn't about reaching your goal, but being present and in the moment. It's a sort of paradox, isn't it, of the, the more you can let go of what you expect is the more freedom and pleasure you have and what you, you have. And I really get that. And it almost sounds like from the depth of the pain that you went to of winning this thing that all of us were crying and jumping up and down and celebrating inside, you had this kind of dusty emptiness, which is the reverse of what people would expect. And one of the things I'm interested in is the psychology of teams and sports and the fans and the players. I think evolutionarily, we are wired to connect and belong and be part of a tribe. So a team that a country can follow or your local team can follow kind of fits with that evolutionary wiring of ours that these are my guys. And, you know, when you look at audience stands and people screaming and shouting or crying, it's so emotional I'm not a great sports fan, as you might well imagine, although I do like doing sport, but I mean, in a very kind of terrible way. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I'm rubbish. I watch a lot of sports people's documentaries and also cry when I see winning prizes. When the Lionesses won last year, I w- was kind of overwhelmed and loved seeing all of that. And I wonder what sense you've made of that for yourself, because it's a relationship you have with the public and yourself and your sport. What have you understood? As a supporter, I'm I'm a supporter and a fan of lots of sports. And as you mentioned, you know, these amazing achievements by the Lionesses and, and all kinds of other teams around the place and individuals too. And I love watching people succeed. And I love seeing that ecstasy and joy in their faces and their eyes and the fulfillment that it brings but as a supporter when i watch those things i have a much i think a different relationship with that event it's something that i i really want to happen i support and i care for and when it happens i think wow and then it has a place in your life where it's quite balanced you then move on with your life you're not held by it and i think my relationship with it in my life was that i was hugely attached to it in that my understanding was if this happens, it's going to change me. It's going to bring something to me that I can't have. And therefore that relationship is, I think, far less balanced and and rather, I don't know, slightly, but, you know, I was held by my successes. And as such, you know, I was asking something of them that they couldn't give me. I was asking, you know, that same euphoria that comes with when the ball goes over or when the final whistle goes and you're jumping around, you are asking that that stay with you at that level because that's what you build this whole image on. That's how it will feel. And if it doesn't feel like that, it'll feel like the bit just afterwards where you're walking around and you just feel like no one can touch you. And you ask that that object infuse you with this power. Now, no objects can. It's it's all that all that whole process is taking place in ourselves with fulfilling our own dreams, but then returning back, you know, to 
the insufficiency that we feel the next morning, which is what happened with me, you know, this kind of what's next. So as a supporter, I think there's so much joy that sports brings. And I think that joy has a even more of a lasting effect because we have a more balanced negotiating stance with it. Whereas, you know, when it's everything you need and desire, we ask of it so much ill-informed in a way. Whereas with the supporting side of it, I watch and you think, oh, it's going to happen. It happens. You think, wow, but there's no idea that this is going to change me. I have this actually a lot more balance. So people think that that absolute life or death need yes it's important to have that kind of energy and excitement and sheer commitment and will yes but when that will becomes survival it's impossible to engage beyond the mind because the mind is constantly working out how do i make everything okay how do i stop that from happening what if this happens what if that happens did i do that okay how is this whereas actually when you're able to have that connection with your creativity that negotiating stance that says you know i want this so much but i still can walk away because I have my independence outside of this. And it's there that you actually find yourself, I think, in the zone rather than uh, people thinking that, oh, now, you know, you won't want it as much as this guy. It's almost like, well, actually, no, I'm just more in charge of my faculties whilst I'm playing, whereas this person is in that reactive space. And ultimately, that energy of urgency and life or death, it can be powerful in a very short-term reactive sort of sense, but it then becomes destructive both in performance-wise, but also in in sheer health. Yeah, it can only last for so long. So in terms of that, yeah, I love watching sport, but I can also tell when I'm watching sport that has a slight link to me where I shift and I start getting attached to it in some way. And I can feel it. It's no longer the same stance of a peaceful, composed joy. It becomes a need. And then suddenly I've got more in the game and I start to suffer it every time. Because... In a, in a way, what you're saying is what is particularly challenging about success or having that winning goal and even watching is when you try and make it and put it in yourself as who you are and that that it's filling a hole of, of absence, of not having enough. And... Actually, as human beings, we are fluid human beings. We need to be able to move in and out of our feelings in response to what is happening in front of us with a foundational belief of innately, I am enough. And that comes mentally from secure attachment, from believing that you are enough and you're securely attached and and you will always be loved and lovable, whatever happens to you. And I was wondering the influence of your childhood on your sense of enough, being brought up into a sporting family. Both of your parents were involved in sport. And what sense you've made of your early years that formed you? For me, that sense of I am enough, the opposite of that and that essentially, you know, that I am enough and that self-love side of things. The opposite of that for me has always been, well, not the opposite, but the kind of the other end of the scale is that has always been fear. When you're in fear, all of your connecting systems are switched off because you're in fight, flight or freeze survival mode. So your capacity to love and connect and to receive love and give love is not available. No, sure. So 
you're only there to fight or or freeze yeah. or, or or move away. So it's a very uh, dualistic, mm. uh, goal-oriented place to live in, fear. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the fear for me, like you said, being in that fight or flight, that survival kind of space for so much of your life and the sense of being enough for me is also that sense of your infinite nature, your eternal nature, which goes beyond the physical because the physical you understand it ages you have that but underneath that there's something there which is constant there's something there which you can connect to i think which has just a sense of i haven't come from anywhere i'm not going anywhere i'm always here was that the opposite of what you heard in your childhood yeah i think it's not so much the opposite it's something i just wasn't able to connect to because it's funny even saying that you think well yeah it's so abstract to think of this thing where you're oh i'm eternal and i'm infinite but actually it's happening all the time when you find yourself just for brief moments maybe you walk out onto a beach you stare at the sea and just for a moment you just feel like everything is okay and it's that moment which for me translates to there is nothing for me to do or go there is something here which just is being it's not trying to do or trying to prove or trying to hold off or trying to and yet my childhood I was very sort of disconnected from that sense. When I did have it, I ignored it in a way. I didn't remember it ever. I didn't mark it down and think, oh, well, this happens as well. I just, I found myself focusing so much on the th- the potential threats and what have you. And as a result, everything had a massive price to pay. And with trying to survive, as you say, physically, in a way, it's the other end of I'm eternal. It's like saying I couldn't be less. And that for me was the dissociation of the worth, which meant that, well, how do you, how do you feel enough through your logic? And that fear became getting things right. Like you said, winning, perfectionism. And then that becomes, well, hold on, I don't actually know what perfectionism is myself. I'm too young. So what it is, is it's what people react. It's how people react to me. That's perfectionism. So now, yes, I can see whether a ball goes through the post or not. I've got that part. But if I play a game and there's lots of those subtle nuances of like, oh, how did I go? It'll be straight away. What do people think? So very quickly, I'm tied into those outcomes. Can you remember how young you were when you first went for the outcome rather than the play? Yeah, I mean, nonstop. I could list We could be here for two days while I recite. And early, what's your earliest one? Well, there would be things like, um, I would, like you said, I had a gift. So no matter what I did, I had a, a calling. I couldn't stop. I'd go to sport straight away. And I loved it, which is why I kept doing it. But at the same time, as soon as I got there and started doing it, I would be creating challenges for myself because that again was a tiny part of that gift saying let's push ourselves let's see what we're capable of but the negotiating stance as i said i struggle with throughout a lot of my life suddenly became right now we're doing this challenge and then it was the i have to get it right and this is why i was quite fortunate in a way that my mindset was perfection and absolute kind of perfection meant exploring every single part of your ability and pushing it to the limit. So I'd at the age of God knows what age, so young, I'd be kicking a ball in the garden with my left foot. And I'd think, right, well, I've got to do it with my right foot. I've got to be able to do it the same. And then I'd be challenging them. Then I'd be like, I've got to kick this ball against the wall and hit that brick. And if it didn't, I'd say, I've got to hit right three in a row. If I couldn't get three in a row, it'd be able to do it again. I do it again. Now I've done it with my left. I have to do it with my right straight afterwards. Okay. It didn't happen. I'm going to go start again with the left. I'd be out there for hours 
there was a tiny part of this gift in there saying, this is great. This is all part of it. But there was so much of this standing in the way survival. And I just fed that survival side. I couldn't recognize the gift at that age. And as a result, you know, in terms of examples, I used to play fullback in the team when I was very young, which meant I was the last line of defense, which is always one of these things. I think, well, why would I want to be that if I was so perfectionist? You know, why be the one that in junior rugby, when someone runs through and it's you versus them, why put yourself in that space? But the thing is, is that I wanted to be there, but I then didn't when I got there. But as it was, I became this kind of brick wall as a last line that no one ever got past me. And then one game, I remember that we were playing against a, a junior team and and it's very early on. It was quite uh, avant-garde at the time, but they had, you know, it was all boys, but they had a, a young girl playing. We're talking like, I must have been five, six years old. This was an under-eight oh, game, wow. under game. So young. Very young. And and, she, and it was all full contact in those days. And I was someone that used to throw myself into these tackles. It was what I felt was my duty, but also I loved to take on this challenge. And she was running down the wing and I was running across as a fullback and she ran off the field and then round the corner flag back onto the field and put the ball down. <laughs> and I was running across. When she ran off the field, I stopped. I was kind of like, oh, she's gone off the field. The referee, as can be the case in those days, in junior rugby, the girl was quite fast. So he was he was way back behind the game. He's kind of puffing away and saying, oh, my God. Um, he doesn't see what's happened. The supporters do. So he just says, you know, try. And for me, immediately, I'm just uprooted by the sense of injustice, but also the sense that people who can't see are looking at me thinking she beat him. Now, this is what I think they're thinking. And yeah, I'm you're thinking you're projecting it onto them, projecting onto them. And so I just straight away, that fear rips up in me that's saying it's not okay. And it just floods out of me. There was injustice in there in a sense of like, it's not fair, it's not fair. But I never had that angry reaction so much as just sheer kind of, it's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay. And my kind of thought process in those days, because of the level I went to, would be that these people on the sideline are going to think about this forever. I had in my head, this would be the most important thing that they will ever experience in their life. (laughs) Seeing a six, seven-year-old girl run around a player and put a ball down, I'm like, they will think about this day in, day out. Because I did. My childhood was littered with things like this, but also littered with the fact that I had a passion that was unrivaled for doing this. You couldn't stop me from every single day for hours on end. If it wasn't rugby, it'd be different sports. I was watching videos of it and then I was going out there and copying it. I was unstoppable from that gift perspective. Something was saying to me, you are never not going to do this. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. There's no way because the pain of not following that gift was way, way worse, even than the, the the absolute terror of the other side. And as a result, I look back on it now and understand that something was playing out there. Something had to be learned and understood. And it also wasn't meant to be learned or understood at eight years old or at 10 or at 15 or even at 22 or 26. You know, it, it was a gradual kind of understanding. Part of what I was talking about at the beginning in terms of surrendering, I've had enormous amounts of issues trusting other people, trusting life, trusting teammates, trusting the future, trusting the unknown. That surrender for me has been that. How do I breathe and be in the face of my survival triggers? Because it's there that I ultimately connect to something deeper. If I'm able, when I'm triggered into that survival mode, to do the opposite and simply explore and be with it, 
I'm sort of moving into a space there of challenging everything I've ever been through. And so I spend most of my life now just monitoring my breathing and being in a negotiating stance of I can walk away rather than I must get through this to be like, you know what, this is hurting inside, but I can live with it rather than I must get rid of it. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much-needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural, they boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code Julia25 on your first order. Head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful. I'll just say it again, www.youthandearth.com. It's fascinating what you're saying, and there, and there's so much in what you're saying. And I'm thinking about people listening and how they can interpret it for themselves. And the kind of piece that seems very clear for me is that when we are in survival mode, which is kind of when you're on hyper alert, full of fear, we are doing and not being. I was interested is that idea that you talk about survival triggers. So even someone listening who isn't an extremely successful rugby player, but has this, I have to do this, or I have to be this, or I have to get that. I think what you're saying is wonderful to dream and aim for it, but enjoy the moment of it. Don't think that the holding on to it, the getting of it is going to give you what you want. That is outside of you. And what you're talking about is in my internal world, I have everything that I need and want. And then this is the pleasure of being alive, an opportunity. And as you talk about in your I Am podcast, fulfilling your potential. And from a psychological perspective, Freud talked a lot about the two things in life are love and work, that we need love and connection and Um, relationship and work for structure, meaning and purpose. And I think we need to add into that play. So it's love, work and play. And play is where we go out of our comfort zone with a kind of creativity and a passion and a dream and a possibility and hope. And I think it isn't trust, it's kind of daring to trust. It's it's not quite, you don't have to trust to play, do you? You can just have little opportunities of playing because you're not invested in getting it right. It's not conditional. It's free. And I think the essence of what you're saying is I don't get over how I've been. I am living with how I've been. And I'm in the process of learning how to be 
who I innately am. I think a really big understanding for that for me is that there are survival issues out there for everyone. And I'm much more privileged, I'm sure, than so many in those respects. But in terms of physically remaining alive, so eating enough, staying out of danger, shelter, cold, all these kinds of things, um, hugely important. So obviously for those... Particularly right now with the cost well, of living of course, crisis. Yeah, and, of, yeah. of course. And, and of course, what we're talking about here is that what I'm talking about is that those things, you become aware that, yes, you need to do what you need to do. That's the survival of the, the fittest in that physical sense. But in other senses, to become more aware of actually, this isn't to do with me surviving my life. This is about surviving my reputation. The survival element there is all like you said, coming from a place of lack. I'm not enough of this, therefore I must have this, that negotiating stance. What I've come to understand in those situations, I I, I understand this, whatever I'm after, it's not going to save me. And that save is the idea that you're asking yourself, if this is through survival, this won't save me. In that respect also, if that insecurity and that insufficiency is driving my performance and my performance works out, I will preserve that insufficiency in order to ensure the performance. So I'm not going to get rid of it by winning. I'm actually validating being insufficient. So over my career, I won more and more and more, as well as lost a lot, but won more and more. And as I did, and had more and more recognition and respect, as I did, I worked harder to create a scenario each time I played that my back was against the wall and no one cared about me. I didn't oh. become, yeah, I know, but not didn't in. Didn't take I, it in. No, but this is in a way for me, it was powerful because it was the way that I felt things were working. And so why would I get rid of it? But if you feed fear, it gets bigger. So as a result, and I spoke to lots of players about this, you know, when I was younger saying, what's it like for you now at 32? When they're 32, they're saying it gets harder. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh. But of course it did because each time you gain more, you've got more to lose. And so you keep reverting back to that insufficiency of this idea that something is going to save me. And if I just reassure this fear, it will turn into joy. It doesn't. It just means that the, the fear says, well, hold on, that worked. I got a brief hit of relief. And in order to get more relief, I need more fear, more reassurance. So you and lock more yourself in. And more winning. And, and so you were mentioning that how I live now in terms of like, I'm just living with how I've been and, and allowing it is the fact that as I allow it, and explore my ability and different ways of being right here and now, I actually change how I've been. It's ludicrous. I change the past by exploring how I can be now. Because if my understanding is such that, okay, I am like this now because of all I've been through, if I'm able to explore that I can be different, what does it say about that story? It has to change. The story of how I got here has to change if I move. The fact is, is that what I've been through is a result of who I am now. Who I am now is not a result of what I've been through. That's very much on that survival physical level where, yes, okay, I've got a scar on my body here because this happened in the past on a physical level, but exploring a deeper way of how I can be is beyond physical. Those things I actually received and achieved did not heal me <laughs> because it wasn't worth the stress. They didn't mm -hmm. say, oh, now I've received this, the elixir of the World Cup. As I hold it in my hands, I feel my youth coming back to me and my joints it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and and it's it's funny that, you know, that there's there's nothing on this earth, I think, worth giving up your health and well-being for because your health and well-being is worth everything. And actually, when you tap into it, 
you realize you can have the best of both worlds. You can engage fully, lose yourself in what you're doing, live moment to moment, but have an influence upon what appears in your life so much greater than through the manipulation, you know, tactics, which, which divides and destroys in, in, in many senses, I think. What you're talking about is the contradiction of the kind of general um, cultural attitude is that winning equals success. And then that makes you a successful being and you become the success. And what you're saying, that's objectifying when we're innately living so that we can't put externals into ourselves and make ourselves that body, that person holding onto the 2003 cup. It feels like you've done a lot of philosophical and deep emotional work. And I wonder what has helped you if people are listening and they want to begin to shift their mindset from doing and succeeding in survival mode to being and allowing and trusting where, what are the routes that you've taken that they may, may be interested to look at? The way I look at it is in kind of three steps almost, So they're not, iterative or chronological steps or ordered steps they actually they they happen in all the time all three at all times but one is awareness so even just become what you can become aware of you can do something about and so awareness for me a massive part of actually how much of life do you want to explore when i've started becoming more aware i realize that there's nothing for me to become aware of outside of myself so you're the source i'm the source of everything what i see is on the back of my eyeballs it's not out there what I feel is the sensor receptors of my body. It's not a thing I'm feeling. So it's internal in relation to the external. So yeah. what is going on in me, like you and I talking now, I'm looking at you, I can see into your eyes. There's a connection that's happening between us that enables me to feel calm and curious and open. I hope you're feeling something <laughs> similar. Um, and so that there is a, a connection and a, a bandwidth that we can expand or contract through the awareness of how we are being with each other. Definitely. I think just by going inwards first and becoming so much more interested there, it takes away this relationship with the outside where things mean this. You regain or you reclaim your meanings and your attention and your energy by having that awareness of the inside. But the next part, which is so big, is, is you have the awareness which is that kind of non-judgmental analysis. You know, it's essentially just an, an observation, whereas the analysis is what leads you away out to the outside. What does it mean when I'm thinking this? You know, where's it going? How's it, how am I getting on? Am I doing well at this? Why am I having that thought? All of that stuff's interesting, but it leads you away from sitting and being, which is the second part, which is that kind of acceptance. And that's In my what, trade, uh, as a humanistic therapist, that's unconditional positive regard, it's called. Okay, lovely. Yeah, I've never heard that. I'll use that. Um, UPR. Yeah, UPR, okay, I've got it. Oh, I love it, an acronym to go with it as well. Yeah. yeah the uh, <laughs> But the, the power of that work is incredible. Mm. And it's the tough part. Now, I, I, I do talk about this thing, this kind of stuff with people because it's my life, it's my passion. I'm a little bit rugby-esque like that in that you leave me sort of two seconds you turn around I've got a ball in my hands when I was younger whereas now you leave me two seconds and I'm I'm engaged in this 
but I also I still find time for having a ball of my own as well because I love that as, as well still. But the, do you still play all the time? Sports. I, I all the time, all the time. Great. Yeah, all the but time. But you play rather than work. I, as I, well. I explore the heck out of it, and it's actually where a huge amount of my acceptance takes place. Wow! As a rugby player, you play or rugby, tennis basketball, or golf. Rugby, oh. basketball, tennis, anything where where there's some kind of goal with an object that I. I explore my ability to make that object go somewhere, but not through manipulation, but through inner sensitivity by essentially finding the energy state of the outcome within me and allowing them to match rather than trying to make a ball go over there through force and effort. Yeah. And and, freedom. And what I'm finding is, is that I'm immensely more effective now. And I kind of think, wow, wouldn't have been interesting if I played again. However, I just don't have the body for it now. I couldn't bear the hits. But the, the point being on what we're talking about before is that, the acceptance, the work is where it all happens. And that's why this thing about talking about things is brilliant because there's kind of an acceptance in talking about things that is that I'm accepting it's okay. So that's great. But there's another level of acceptance on that work on your own, which I think is really powerful when you're on your own, you're feeling things and you have that choice to say, do I try and survive this and and react or do I find my being in amongst the urgency of doing and to call it patience, call it acceptance, call it meditation, call it love, call it gratitude, call it um, yoga, call it breathing, whatever it you, however you might look at it. But the beauty of that solitary and, and quiet, silent work is being immense for me because I was just a kind of, there's a problem, sort it. And I don't care who struggles because we sort it, we sort it. And it's normally me that suffers, but sort it. Whereas now it's kind of like, okay, let center. it be and center in it. But what you then find, and this is interesting for me, is that in the third part of this is being then the ability to respond. But I see this more as expression in that when that silent work, you're able eventually, if it takes a while or if it's immediate for me anyway, to start finding what you want to do rather than what you don't want to happen. You start tuning into an intention that says, I'd like this. You start moving in the direction of what you want, excitement and passion. And then when you follow those excitement and passions, you're within the constraints of your present situation, whatever your highest excitement in that present situation is, you find it, you follow it and it snowballs and it unfolds and it provides and presents more excitement and passion opportunities until you find yourself spending so much of your life doing what it is that you love doing. Or you spend so much of your life surviving what it is you don't want happening. So that movement, I think, is where the law of attraction thing comes in in the in the third part, and that you're constantly sending out a message of what you want, and you're aligned to what you want. You're a living example of what you want. When you're feeling really good, you can't help but feel gratitude. When you're feeling really good about yourself, you can't help but look at another person and feel compassion. And I think that the issue for me was that when I was growing up through this, my awareness was limited. So I was hugely reactionary and resistant instead of accepting. And therefore, a lot of my responsibility, my ability to express myself was actually done through what things I'd read. How should I speak to another person to be compassionate? Okay, well, I should say this rather than actually, but what do you feel? What's the truth? Authentically you. Yeah. So a lot of my performance was kind of like, how should I perform? Well, it's a performance. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How does this energy want to express itself? So a classic would be nerves before a game. The nerves kick in. I resist them. Because I resist them, I want to try and get rid of them. I'm inspired into this survival thinking of what if this happens and I'm indulged by it and I go round and round, it gets worse and worse and worse. The other way of looking at it now, which is when I'm in those positions, is what an amazing energy. I wonder how this is going to express itself through me. And of course, what you find out, as many people say, is that when you're about to do something big, you get a nervous kind of feeling within you, which provides an extra energy through which you can express yourself because it's needed because the body's saying, well, we've got something big coming. I know you care about it. Here we go. Have some of this. And you say, oh, thanks very much. Or I don't want it. In which case you spend half an hour working out what can go wrong and then crawl into that big moment just trying to get through it. Or you walk out there and say, you know what? I have this feeling. Let's see what you've got for me. I'm open. And in those moments, whatever you find out, you're definitely moving, I think, closer to understanding a bit more about who you are and and releasing more of it out into the world. I mean, what Absolutely. I think if, if I if I did a a little diagram of what you're talking about, first of all, it's how you're you're navigating yourself in relation to the world and in relation to yourself and other people in the world and and your aims is to go inwards and be aware of what is going on in you, to pay attention and attune to that, listen to that and respond to that in a way that fits authentically that your your internal wishes and your external behaviour is aligned. And so there's this kind of authentic response and that that is a growing and evolving process that isn't goal-directed but is process-directed. And that does mean that you actually live with meaning and passion and excitement because it's constantly changing process. Yeah, I think completely compared to when I have not been able to be aware, become aware, tune in my awareness and and become accepting therefore moving inward, what I then do is just keep reacting. And what am I reacting through? I'm reacting through that conditioning, most of which, you know, like younger life or who knows, previous lives or however it's been accrued or the traumatic side of it, whatever it might be. And essentially what I'm seeing through my reactivity is just patterns of my childhood over and over again. So, you know, I might look outside and go, oh my God, this is happening. But it's just a kind of part of what I learned a long time ago and and embedded just almost being recreated so that I can feel the way that I always feel. So what I'm never seeing is what's really there. Because we're such for habit forming beings and our brains like habits. And so old ghosts, what we call in the business, the ghosts from the nursery come up all of the time. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, we're coming to the, to the end and it's been such an interesting conversation. But do you do you have a question for me? I'm really interested, I think, in the therapy side of things, because for me, what was interesting growing up was in, in deep struggle when I was there. I, I often had professional help. And a lot of it was placed on this idea of, okay, this is how you see things. How can you see things? If you change your perspective, you change, you change and where you put your attention it yeah, changes yeah, your the, the, response. The, the sort of the, the cognitive behavioral kind yeah. of, I guess, system and the model that, that allows you to say, okay, right, well, hold on. Is it really like that? Is it that really true? But the bit that really got 
me was the understanding, well, hold on. The question I want to know, and I got more interested in was, well, what is it really? So this is how you think about how you thought about it. And that's harmful. This is now helpful to think about it this way. I'm like, but at some point I dropped into that underneath space that was always there. And I call that potential unrealized. And this got me in the interested about who am I? Because I know I can see myself as being a success and a great guy. And in other ones, I can think of myself as being a disappointment and all this and that, but who am I really? And that question has been so much more powerful. I wonder how much of a part of therapy is actually guiding people towards that. And, and sometimes I find it difficult for, to sort of say, well, if I, I'm a coach, for example, and uh, there is a question coming, by the way, I will get to it. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a coach, so. A rugby players a, or a yeah, coach. Yeah. A rugby of, of, of you know, I guess in some ways, in all different kinds of ways. I find it a hugely, immensely sort of empowering job. And I feel mm. myself constantly integrating what I'm going through. It just becomes part of a natural process of what I'm doing. I wonder in the therapy world in this respect, you know, like how much of therapy is about directing people to that space of actually having questions that essentially can't be answered unless it's essentially by silence and by full engagement. And how much also is it about the therapist doing their work? About the therapist, I mean, what all the research shows and certainly is matched by my experience is that it isn't a model of therapy that is better or worse, but the quality of the relationship with their client. And that quality of that relationship is about trust and feeling seen and feeling kind of a warmth, an unconditional positive regard, really, and that there's something genuine that's going on in there. You're being received with, with empathy. I think that's a sort of core part of a a strong alliance, a strong working alliance. I th- just, just, I want to just boss you on that, just poke my head in again, because there's something very interesting about that. I think that's hugely, hugely powerful in terms of creating those environments around the people you're working with and also within the teams and the change rooms I've felt and within families and everything. It's hugely, hugely important, that trust. I completely agree. How difficult is it in carrying on your answer that you're going to give? As a therapist, for example, I've been enormously challenged within that trust when you're in the middle of telling something and you're like oh my god this is really coming out a therapist kind of just takes a glance at their watch because they have to because maybe they've got another client coming in and do you know what I mean it's like it's really tricky because you say there's this deep trust but there's also this kind of like it's a contractual relationship yeah they pay me exactly exactly yeah and and how do you so this is a massive question for me how do you place that that someone is saying i hold perhaps an answer for your struggle i don't hold an answer but perhaps i hold a new doorway but i give it because i can't give it unless you give me money and i and, and i know it's hugely important but i find it very very challenging even in my own world i think the fact that it is a relationship that is bounded by I meet you for this amount of time once a week or twice a week and you pay for my capacity to be able to respond to your needs and create an environment where you find what is the root of your suffering and you have your answers and I create the space for you to find not necessarily answers, but ways of being that you can live with given what's happened to you. And I have no other relationship with you in your life at all. 
So you you come into me either on the screen or through my door, you go out of the door and we have no contact. And we know that it will come to an end when both of us kind of recognize you've done what you need to do. And in the same paradox, as you're talking about performing and freeing, I think there's a par- there's a paradoxical freedom in knowing that that is the deal. You know, they don't have to worry about me. They don't have to think about me. They don't have to know what's going on in my life. They pay for my emotional wisdom, knowledge, capacity, and ability to enable them to to fulfill their potential. I think there's a great responsibility on the person in the therapy as well to recognize that. And sometimes, you know, I find that could be tied up with actually some of the challenges they're going through is the attachment, like you said, to the trust and that, and that must be a really difficult job to almost try and control that relationship so that it remains healthy without triggering more and more of the issues which come from distrust but the issues that are triggered become the work of the therapy yeah of course yeah so when i say we've we've got two minutes to go which you and i have yeah looking (laughs) at my watch now yeah yeah (laughs) and they do this sort of door handle drop which is drop some massive thing which they want me to kind of overgo the boundary (laughs) and i say I can really hear how important that is. That is a big thing. And we'll have to come back to it next yeah. week. So I hold the boundary yeah. in some ways when I can really do that, then they can trust me that they can trust themselves with me. If I keep breaking the boundary, then that's very scary because a lot of therapy is about containment. I can contain your unbearable feelings. You can allow yourself to feel murderous and metabolize those experiences because in relationship with me in this space, they are contained. And that in some ways frees you then to go out in the world and just get on with your day. That's really interesting. Really interesting. I, I think that's really uh, powerful because that would challenge me as a, you know, with the, the old I mentioned, you know, the, how am I doing the perfectionism? How do people think of me? You know, to be like, hold on, I should give this more time and go over the boundary so that they can see I'm really caring. And actually, this is this still much my, my work, maybe not not so much theirs. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Thank you so much, Johnny. It's been such an interesting conversation. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? Talk about your wonderful kombucha that I've drunk. Yeah. And it's amazing. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of things going on really at the moment outside of of coaching. I have a uh, uh, the I Am podcast, which is very much a lot of what we've been speaking about in terms of connecting to this peace, purpose, passion, performance, and those amazing parts that that underwrite such an amazing life experience. And then I've got uh, a living drinks brand called Number One Living, which is a huge part of this. Has also come from this journey of exploring how to bring the body to life rather than to keep it alive. You know, nice. the power of the power of this kind of living bacteria and all these kind of amazing things that enhance our our health and well-being so much. Outside of that, I've got a foundation called the Inspired Foundation, which works oh, with wow. teachers. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Just in order just to explore, um, like you mentioned there about doing our own work and and how that becomes the example of what's possible to others and just sort of creating a community where people can actually come to you know, to join like minds that are looking at how can we challenge ourselves? How can we relate differently to the unknown in order to grow and evolve towards something beyond our imagination? Thank you so much, Johnny. This was a wonderful a, conversation. Yeah, great.
One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I was really fascinated by the Johnny Wilkinson conversation. I also think it's quite funny because the three of us literally never watch rugby. I mean, he was well known to us and we know him, but we don't really know about sport. Um, I was on a rugby pitch quite recently, actually. Well, you know. Yeah. You can basically, because I live in Bath and in Bath, you can basically walk on to Bath rugby pitch and no one stops you. So sometimes like it's by the river and sometimes I go there. But no, like there was no rugby happening while I was on the rugby pitch. (laughs) I don't think using the Bath rugby pitch as a park... It doesn't count. No. No. I always want to win and I almost never do because I'm not very sporty. And so this extraordinary kind of paradox of the dusty emptiness of winning was so fascinating to me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it was so interesting that what got him the most external success also brought him all sorts of pain. Um, and like the things that were his strength, the survival, this like sense of shame if something went wrong that drove him so hard also made it really hard for him to be happy. Did you watch that Michael Jordan documentary called The Last Dance? Yeah, I loved that. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. You should definitely watch it. It doesn't matter if you like basketball or not. Mm. But, But like in this, there's one bit where he sort of talks about almost making up a threat from another player in order to kind of drive his sort of vengeance. He plays a basketball game and one of the other players beats him. And then he creates in his mind a taunt that this other player has said. And then when he plays that team again, he completely destroys him because he's got this idea in his head that this guy has disrespected him in some way, which the guy like absolutely has not. And it's that sort of sense of needing some sort of drive from within to kind of create this superhuman force. And it felt like he was talking about how his whole career had initially been driven by fear. That was the energy mm. that he had capitalized on. That was the what he put in the tank. Right. Like Survi- survival and fear. I thought it was fascinating. It was like I felt so powerful, like like you're describing him. But that that's such an exhausting and depleting source, like the collapse that comes after survival, right? And then the shift he was describing of to something of a, a really different place in him. When you're driven from fear, what you're trying to do is control. Like what I heard him talking about, it was all about objectifying the end goal, which was to win, rather than in any sense being in present in the process and the energy coming from being with the game, like where it emerges from him because he enjoys it, because he has a gift, because he's trained so hard and allowing essentially himself to play. And also in that, so what you're talking about is the difference between objective and subjective. So if you Mm. have an objective that you have to be a winner, which is a thing, rather than a subjective 
person, which is the experience, there's a massive gap between the two and you lose yourself. And that, I mean, one of his big messages, which I think is relevant to all of us, is we can only find ourselves from within, interrelationally, how we are with others as well. But it can never be by a cup or a winning or an external... Yes, but I think for most of us, obviously, it wouldn't be like the sort of success he had. It was a very tangible success, but sort of the next thing, like my salary, whatever the material thing is, when I get that, then I'll be happy. And when I get that, and then I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And and then you get it and it doesn't make you happy because there is a next thing. I think that is something that is familiar probably to most people. And that links to that hedonic treadmill that we naturally adapt to whatever place that we get to. So if you want to get to your first million, that happiness lasts for about two or three weeks, and then you revert back to your normal happiness state, and then you need Mm. two million, and it just becomes a kind of hunger that you can never satisfy. Yes, and that's the bit where I thought he described what I understood as that when your orientation is about getting a goal and sort of fear driven and you know, like the next thing, the next thing, it's a very narrow state. So it's highly successful in getting a goal as a strategy, but it's, it, you know, that control squeezes out joy in life. So the process itself then becomes miserable. There's no spontaneity, no creativity, no play. In fear, we don't play. We only can play and be creative and spontaneous when we feel safe or safe enough. And that makes the journey enjoyable. <laughs> and and it's a much more sustainable state, isn't it? And it's much more nourishing. Like the thing I thought about is like he gets the, he talked about having big highs, but then doesn't nourish, doesn't stay. We all need sometimes to just to get somewhere or to make something happen. Like we need to sell our house. We need but it's living from that place majority of the time, isn't it? problematic, I think. I mean, recently I've been looking at this model of therapy called internal family systems, which is Dick Schwartz's model. And as with all therapy, you have to kind of put the model on yourself in order to learn how to practice it with your clients. The model of internal family systems is that you develop these protectors that become parts of yourself that are separated from your core energy that work to protect you from pain or difficulty. And as you children know, one of my big protectors has been being a striver. (laughs) And so I was really aware of my striver listening to Johnny, because I've been the youngest of five children, competing for attention, competing to always being the youngest child running to catch up. I've been kind of striving and I'm 63. Um, So Johnny got the hang of it much quicker and earlier than I did, despite my decades (laughs) of therapy. Yeah, being a striver is, that's not a bad thing, being aware of it. So I think you were talking on the weekend, mum, about sometimes being able to turn it off and like have space. But I think being a striver just in and of itself, it's not, it's not bad, is it? As you were talking, Mum, I was thinking about our family dynamics and I was thinking it's interesting that you really resonate with the striver and I really resonate with the like, oh, let's not strive at all. I find it very stressful, that state. To me, that I, I'm very avoidant of it. And I think you're saying you're one of five. I think being in a family of quite a few strivers, I would say, 
who are really good at that goal-oriented way of being, I've gone the other way. And sometimes what I struggle with is to galvanize myself to make something happen. Mm, and so, so like, up to what you were saying, Em, it's, like, it's not that it's a bad thing, either being one or the other. It's kind of, if you just live in one, what you want to be able to do is access both for the right times. Mm. And probably all of us have a disposition, you know, towards one or the other depending on all sorts of things and I'm like I could do with a bit more striver (laughs) but it's different strengths isn't it and that living all in one is is usually not ideal and that links to I think a question that anyone listening can ask themselves which Johnny has been posing for himself which is who am I really Mm. and in the internal family systems frame that is what is my core energy and essence of myself, um, which can allow for a striver and slowing down and moving in and out, but doing it from a place of of being enough, of being valid without having to prove anything, um, I think is a very useful, interesting question. Mm. Yeah, and sort of allowing all the parts. But I also thought that his question to you was so interesting, like this relationship between a client and a therapist, I think as a therapist, it just is inherently kind of fascinating because you are being paid. There is like a time element and there are boundaries. And those are all sort of important psychological things that are part of the containment. But at the same time, that is really contractual. And yet the power of therapy comes from the relationship. So it's not like you're a lawyer that's sort of being paid by the hour. And that relationship is really authentic. So it's, I think it's like mm. there is an attention in that, I think. And in some ways that sort of feels slightly contradictory. And um, we obviously work with children and they are way more blunt about being like, what? <laughs> um, you know, so they'll say to me, why can't you come to my house? Can I see you in the playground? Why can't I see you outside of therapy? And you have to kind of explain it. Mm. I think there is a sort of tension there. And also that we have this association that if you pay someone and it's not real, they don't really care. They're just yeah. pretending that like there's this somehow we get that jumbled up together. Like if you're being paid to care, you don't really care. Mm. And actually, sometimes I've struggled with it of like, of being paid and being paid is what allows me to make it my work Mm. otherwise it's just not possible for it to be offered in the capitalist world that we live in it's not that you're being paid to care that's sort of the wrong framework if that Mm. makes sense it makes it a viable activity (laughs) yeah and also it's the contradiction like I dreamt about a client last night very powerfully we've had a very powerful session and I mean, us three, we don't talk about our clients together very often, but I think all of us would say that the client lives on in us, in our mind, many days after we've spoken to them and maybe come back into our mind a long time after we've seen them. But I do think the boundary of holding the time, not going to their houses, not being friends, being paid is what helps them be safe and free, as well as and, ourselves. And it's such a liberating relationship in that way. Yeah. Like you no. owe this person nothing. Mm, no obligation. I think that isn't often recognized that it's liberating for the client, mm. that they can just, they don't owe you anything because they've paid you. They don't have to be nice to you. They don't have to agree with you. They have to tend to your needs. They can be furious with you. And they don't give a shit about what's going on in your life. It's not their business. Mm. <laughs> 
I had a therapist once who described it as being paid was in a way being paid to go and take care of their needs elsewhere. I had a therapist who went to sleep on me <laughs> every, oh. almost every time. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> Did they acknowledge it? Were they like? No, she was quite old. I thought he was interested when he was talking about the sort of stories, getting attached to stories about himself. And this idea that we can get very attached to that this is the story of ourself and this is who I am and that being so defining. And that now he's in a place where that just is fluid. And the story of what's happened to him, even though technically the facts haven't changed, the story of himself changes, how liberating that can be and how attached we can get to a story about who we are. And it reminded me of when I was studying uh, experimental psychology at university, when they talked about memory, and this information is always really stuck in my mind, is that when we retrieve a memory, it changes. It always it changes according to the situation that we're in and the position when we're retrieving it. And so when we save it again, we save it with the experience of retrieving it. The point being that our memory is not meant to be like a computer. It's meant to serve us in our present moment. That's the role of memory. It's not to make an accurate log of exactly what happened to us. It's supposed to just help inform how we should behave and how we can survive. And that that's a really natural thing for our memory, therefore, to or our story about ourselves to be a living thing, not a kind of fact about who we are and what happened to us. Mm. I think that is so interesting. I highly recommend listening to a This American Life episode where they did an episode about memory. And after 9-11, they had a few people and they got them to record hour by hour, I don't know, sort of some time frame, exactly what happened to them during 9-11 and then they went back every year and got them to retell what happened to them in the same time frame and they're like by the sort of end of doing this the end result of this very very memorable event right it's not like you know the day I went to Sainsbury's it had completely changed the times had changed what they had done had changed like for everyone no one had like the exact same memory as they did like the day after it had happened and it just sort of goes to show how your later experiences your emotional experience all of these different things and other people's memories all impact how we remember stuff that and is that's so to do with what the role of memory is it's not that memory is bad it's just that its job is not to remember things accurately yeah we think it is accurate because then they ask these people exactly. like, do you think are you sure do you think that it will match up to your first memory they're like a hundred percent but that's a cultural myth yeah. isn't it that's what we think memory yeah. is but it isn't well on that really top bit of insight if i may say my daughters um we'll end here and we hope everybody enjoyed the episode. Particular thank you to Johnny Wilkinson for his brilliant conversation. And if those of you listening are enjoying it, do please share this episode with someone and rate and subscribe to the podcast. Until next week, thank you. Let me tell you about a podcast I love, and honestly, I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, 
and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week she speaks to an incredible expert such as Gabor Maté, Dr Julie Smith and me to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Just search Mother Kind.